No budget, no districts, and no insider trading charges. At least, not yet. This is the Politics Podcast from WUNC. I'm Jeff Tabiri. Glad to have you along. It's been several weeks since we reviewed some of the happenings in North Carolina politics, so glad to be back with you and here for our discussion are Aisha Du. She's the political director with the progressive organization Higher Heights and also Clark Reamer. He's chief of staff to State House Representative Jason Sander, Republican from Lincoln County, and Clark is also former chair of the state's Young Republicans. Nice to see you both. Hi, Jeff. Good to see you. Four months into the fiscal year and some 40 months since the last budget became law, we have quiche. Yes, the most memorable update on the budget negotiations to emerge in recent days is that Republican legislative leaders and the Democratic governor had some egg, cheese and crust over breakfast. Veggies optional, I suspect. In all seriousness, does the continued close-lipped nature of these budget talks strike you as more good or bad? Aisha, let's start with you. You know, I think that they're good. Um, At this point, it seems uh, like people are trying to join the conversation. Uh, The governor seems very hopeful about it. So, um, yeah, I I will also remain hopeful about it as well. Um, You know, there are definitely some 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 big uh, differences in approach and philosophy around what should be funded in this budget and and to what extent. Um, And so I'm hopeful that they will come to in agreement uh, by the time we, hopefully by the time we enter next week. But as the governor said that um, he's not going to put a, a time a time uh, constraint on it. More good or bad, Clark? Let's start there. No, I think it's, it's more good. I mean, the good thing is people are still talking. Um, this is a different process than we have ever done before. Or um, as far as I know, um, a general assembly has never engaged a governor in this pre-conference or, you know, kind of came to a conference report, but hasn't publicly released it and then brought in the governor to have kind of a three-party negotiation. That's something that's never been done before. Um, and I'm hopeful it's going to re- lead to a positive outcome. And so as long as we're still talking, we're still making progress. I think it's when we get overly political that, you know, that's when things will come to a grinding halt. All right. So, so Clark, the last time we checked in with you on this topic, it was about a month ago here on this program. From your perspective, are we any closer now on October 29th to having a budget than we were then at the beginning of the month? Well, I, I honestly have no uh, inside info, but what I will say is I think the mood of the building's a little brighter than it was a month ago. Okay. Uh, I also want to just pose a transparency question to both of you, uh, because, and I don't mean this in a good or a bad way, but just kind of reminding listeners of, of, of where you both operate within the political world. Clark is more inside the political bubble on Jones Street. Aisha is m- in a broader political bubble, more of a maybe a strategery political bubble. Um, but this process, this pre-conference budget process between Republican legislative leaders and the Democratic governor is super opaque. There is not a lot of transparency. Both sides say this is this is a good faith effort. This is how we have to do it. But I'm wondering if, if each of you thinks that uh, whether or not each of you think that it has to be done this way, if there could not be a greater level of transparency as they go back and forth. Aisha? I mean, I think that transparency is also great. Um, 
uh, or more transparency would be wonderful. Um, at this point, I'm really invested in working together and moving forward. We haven't had an agreement on the budget um, for so long now that if there's a way to make that happen, I'm invested in us coming together. I'll just say, I, I know it's frustrating for everyone on the outside and especially y'all in the media to have this done in a um, opaque manner but my experience is that to have actual negotiations and to have compromise, it's easier for things sometimes to be done behind closed doors because once every detail is being leaked, then you have every activist group, every stakeholder that has one piece or another in the budget or looking to not be in the budget, um, putting pressure on either the Senate or the House or the governor, and that can derail negotiations really quickly. So it might not be what we wish it was, but it might be the best thing um, to do going forward. Let's move on. We are getting closer to new congressional and legislative districts. The redistricting process uh, has been underway for several months now at the General Assembly. Committee action appears possible, if not likely, for next week on these fresh maps. Now, one set of draft districts would give Republicans what we expect, anticipate, to be an 11-3 advantage in the state's U.S. House delegation. Now, objectively, that's not fair. But as Catawba College political science professor Michael Bitzer noted uh, in a recent series that we did on redistricting, there has never been fairness in this process. So, Clark, an 11-3 map is objectively unfair, push back if you want, but objectively unfair, gerrymandered, though potentially legal. Is that a fair classification? Yeah, I'd say it. it, it we're committed to pushing a legal map, um, and we'll see what comes out of the process. Uh, it, it, it's very hard for me to comment on what may be, um, but I, I will say that, you know, it's going to be a legal map and it's going to be a, uh, you know, the Democrats have a geographic problem in that, that they are generally centered around cities and there are only so many urban areas. And if you look at their commentary that we got when we were, you know, we had just had public hearings on the maps last week and a lot of the pushback was we don't want urban areas combined with rural areas. We had a great number of activists from Chatham County saying, we don't want to be combined with Randolph County. So it almost goes on cross purposes. How do you have the only way to make a map that is approximately equal is to what, what you would call cracking urban areas. Uh, and if that's not something that those residents of urban areas wants, if they want to keep community of interest together, uh, then we run into some of these problems. But a finer point on it, there's also the ability to crack, and I'm thinking of the triad, like Winston-Salem, Greensboro, High Point. And we'll see when we get the, 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 the districts, ultimately, there's a way to crack those that would make it competitive, and there's a way to crack that region that would make it uh, rather conservative or lean conservative. Right, depending on how much urban or rural. I, Aisha, uh, when when you caught wind on on social media or or, or from a, uh, a a political follower with a watchful eye, and you heard that these maps potentially will be eleven three, the congressional delegation, what what was your reaction? What'd you make of that? Basically, I, I think that um, there are a number of maps right that that have been proposed that seem to be uh, potentially 
problematic for various reasons. Um, and so, of course, I would definitely like to see more of a balance. Um, and I think that although one can say that the process has never been fair, I would say that perhaps it's been a little bit more balanced. Um, and this is this is this doesn't sound like um, <clears throat> some of the proposed maps are the most uh, balanced version of what this is going to look like. Um, I think that we're, what, a week away from a vote. Um, and so uh, I know that there are going to be more than a number of steps around this. Um, you know, as a, as a person who lives in Mecklenburg County, to see Mecklenburg County divvied up um, in numerous uh, different directions um, seems like it could potentially be uh, not the best option for for um, a Mecklenburger. Um, and I don't know that it's also necessarily the best uh, option for those in rural areas either. Um, I think that it's going to be very interesting to see what this looks like. And um, well, we're sure that um, uh, we, we can all imagine that there will probably be some lawsuits. So it's going to be interesting to see how this process plays out again. Aisha, let me ask you about reform, and I'd love to hear Clark on this as well. Uh, is there a piece of reform, tangible, feasible, that would be palatable, desired by you for the future redistricting processes here in North Carolina, whether it was, was R's or D's that were drawing maps? What would you like to see that you think could help to achieve maybe more competitive districts, maybe a, a more uh, fair balance across the state? I would love to see just a, a process that overall um, seemed uh, a, a little less partisan altogether and, um, you know, really, really uh, seemed uh, representative of an of a independent uh, independent input input led or process that would allow for there to be representation adequate for um, for the state, be it Democrat or Republican, um, and also from uh, a perspective of definitely representing urban and rural areas well, and representing um, the the racial demographics of the area well. So I know that the goal, the goal has been to approach this process blindly. I'm not quite sure what that what that means. Um, and so perhaps it will or won't be legal. Um, but I'm I'm interested to see how it plays out and what the the take on it is for this round. Um, there's two things I, I would note. And first of all, especially when we're talking about our legislative state legislative districts in the state house and state senate. The process that the Stevenson case has requires, as long as that's law in North Carolina, actually means there's not too many districts that you can push one way or the other. It's probably a dozen across both um, both the House and Senate. Um, so there really isn't too much room for partisan gerrymandering um, under that case and the way the pods work out and everything involved with that. And then secondly, I would say that when you look at other states that have tried reform, their results have not been markedly more or less likely to give partisan advantage to one side or the other than states that continue to engage in a partisan process. So, you know, I think that drawing a maps is always going to be inherently, and this is what I think, that, as I recall, the Supreme Court said a couple of years ago, it's an inherently political process. And it's something we just have to get through. Um, no one likes making uh, 
watching laws or sausages get made, but they have to get made. So, Clark, you mentioned the Stevenson case, which is uh, a bit of litigation that rose through state courts about 20 years ago, and it requires counties, whenever possible, to remain whole, and it groups counties together to try to achieve um, equal population or close to equal population across constituencies. So just a little context there. But you mentioned that because of Stevenson, there's only a small number of of districts or, or a, a small number of options, so to speak. Uh, but is it fair to think about those districts, if, if there's like a little spectrum within those districts, it's on one end, it might give Republicans a supermajority. And on the other end, if, if they were drawn to the other uh, extreme within this little um, spectrum, it could result in, in, in very much like an, an open fight every two years, uh, an open question of who's going to win control of the legislature. Um, I'd say it might be the difference between Republicans having an easy supermajority and an easy majority. I don't know is there's it, it would go so far as to an open fight. I really think it's pretty, pretty restricted. I've, I've had behind the scenes conversations with Democrat consultants and they have told me that they've spent time drawing maps and it's really hard under Stevenson to do anything that looks like you can get to a Democratic majority. Finally, let's move on to U.S. Senator Richard Burr, who is again or still under investigation. Listeners may remember that Burr dumped $1.6 million in stock just prior to the pandemic and the shutdown. The FBI looked into it, seized one of his cell phones, and ultimately announced no criminal wrongdoing. But this week, the saga got perhaps a second wind. ProPublica reports that after Burr dumped his stock, he called his brother-in-law. They spoke for 50 seconds. And one minute later, the brother-in-law called his broker and dumped stock. ProPublica reports that there is an active investigation by the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, into Burr as well as the brother-in-law. This looks pretty bad. Again, right, Clark? We'll see. We'll see where the, there's already been a seemingly full investigation and it uh, announced um, that Senator Burr was cleared. We'll see what this one brings up in the end. Um, I think two things come to mind for me. And the first is what, inf what inside information would the Congress have in February of last year about the pandemic that wasn't being released? And why was that being kept secret at that time. And then secondly, how much information can you really pass along in a 50 second phone call of dump stock? And if we look at what the stock market has done since February of last year, I'm not sure that was really the best strategy. So um, you, what I'll say is that uh, right there was, I guess, the uh, NPR story, right, where they captured that Burr gave information to a small group of people earlier um, about the potential crisis and that it would affect uh, schools and travel. And at that point, that was that was really revolutionary information. I mean, at this point, it just seems to be old hat as we've been going through this for almost two years now. But at the time, um, if you had no insight, there was no way to know about that. Um, I'll also add that I don't know what a conversation looks like for 50 seconds when perhaps there could have been a prior conversation. Um, so there was context for it, perhaps. Um, and and also at the same time, um, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it seems like it could potentially be problematic that there could have been issues, that there could have been information relayed. And yet 
we're not the ones who are uh, implementing and suing uh, the the investigation. So um, it it needs to play out. It needs to play its its uh, its course. It needs to run its course and and see where it goes from there. But um, it does seem like it's potentially problematic. Clark Reamer is the chief of staff to Republican State House Representative Jason Sane. Aisha Du is the political director at the organization Higher Heights. Happy Halloween. Boo. I suspect many of you are well aware, but if you didn't know, earlier this week, uh, we wrapped up a series called Behind the Lines. It's a four-parter podcast, and there were some radio segments as well. It's all about redistricting here in North Carolina, historical context, uh, some background on litigation, possibilities of reform, and an update as to what is happening at the General Assembly right now. Behind the Lines, four different episodes in your podcast feed, presumably, uh, hopefully, wherever you got this podcast. So please check that out and uh, pass it along to uh, a friend, a colleague, a neighbor, somebody who is passionate or needs to be passionate uh, about redistricting. My name is Jeff Tabiri. I hope that you have a lovely Halloween. If you were wondering, my son is going as a raccoon and my daughter will be dressing up uh, as a pumpkin. Talk to you again next week. <laughs>